Be sure to tune in to Tamina Talks Immigration with Tamina Watson this and every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Immigration attorney Tamina Watson founded Watson Immigration Law here in Seattle and is a frequent speaker, author, and blogger who has appeared in Forbes, CNN, The Seattle Times, and much more. On her radio show, Tamina will take all your questions live on air. Plus, she will discuss and provide insight into the latest immigration news and issues as well as talk with notable personalities who have impacted U.S. immigration laws or our notable immigrants themselves. Check out Tamina Talks Immigration Tuesdays at 10 a.m. on Daisy 1250 a.m., radio that listens to you. Good morning, Seattle. This is Tamina Watson on Daisy 1250 a.m. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And uh, this is a very special show. We are live on Facebook. Everybody on Facebook, thank you so much. Hi. Um, you know, we are doing this special show because we have a very special guest in town. And I wanted to make sure that we had him on the show before he left. So thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And before I tell you all about him, um, I want to make sure that you know that we are live on Facebook. This show is being recorded to be aired on Desi 1250 AM sometime in the future. The date will actually be July 18th, 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I hope you will tell your friends and family who are not listening to the show at the moment or tuned in. Uh, And of course, it will be aired on that Friday as well. So thank you so much uh, for being here. And on that day, you remember you'll be able to tune in by live stream on www.dc1250am.com, but also downloading the app, dc1250am. And anybody who's new to this show, this show is called Tamina Talks Immigration. And as you can tell from the uh, title, it's all about immigration because I know nothing else. Um, I'm an immigration lawyer. I practice immigration law, but I now host a radio show where we talk to people like Ali Nurani, but also talk about updates on uh, what's happening in the law, in policy, uh, and so much more. So if you are not familiar with the show, welcome and thank you. But also there's a Facebook page which is brand new as of this year. I went 18 months without a Facebook page because I didn't know I needed one. (laughs) (laughs) And it's called Tamina Talks Immigration Radio Show. It's very interactive. We have about 10,000 likes, which is great. Um, And uh, all the previous shows are on the website itself, the Facebook page. Uh, All the shows are archived on SoundCloud. So um, if you have any questions, comments, you can always uh, go to the page and message us. Uh, But when when we're live on air, you can call us at the show too. So Ali, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. This is great. You know, before I dive into this, I want to make sure people know about this. This This book is called There Goes neighborhood there's the camera Um, as you can see I did study the book I'm a nerd (laughs) Uh, there goes the neighborhood it's a fantastic book if you care about immigration um, policy and all the things that are happening in in the US right now this book is one of the most timeless books that could ever be thank you really is and you it's interesting I thought you wrote it in the last six months but you've been working on this book since 2010 well the strategy itself we've been working on since 2010 the book I did all the writing really last year in 2016 
Um, so really the strategy of engaging conservatives and moderates uh, across the country, that's something we've been doing for a handful of years, but uh, I started scribbling down some words last year. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Um, so before I dive into all, all sorts of questions, because I will not have enough time to ask the questions I really want to ask, oh. I'm going to tell people a little bit about you. So Ali Narani is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum, an advocacy organization promoting the value of immigrants and immigration. Growing up in California as the son of Pakistani immigrants, Ali quickly learned how to forge alliances among people of wide-ranging backgrounds, a skill that has served extraordinarily well as one of the nation's most innovative coalition builders. Prior to joining the forum, Ali was executive director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advoca Advocacy Coalition, and he has served in leadership roles within public health and environmental organizations. In 2015, Ali was named a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He holds a master's in public health from Boston University and is a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley. Ali lives in Washington, D.C. and is the author of There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of, of, of American Immigration, uh, published in April 2017. So thank you so much. That's a, that's a lot of things that you've done. You know, listeners don't, uh -huh. uh, some listeners might be, you know, um, viewers might be hearing about you for the first time. Um, why don't we tell them how you got into immigration? Um, you know, coming from public health as a background, how did you end up sure. in immigration? So I was uh, living in Boston at the time. Um, so it was probably around uh, late 2003. Um, where I uh, ended up in the position of running the statewide immigrant rights coalition, the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. But before that, I was uh, working for the Dorchester House and the Common Square Health Centers in, in Dorchester, which is the largest neighborhood in the city of Boston. And it was there that I began to understand the impact the nation's broken immigration system was having on really the youth in the community. And I remember very distinctly, and I, I wrote about it in fact, um, a moment where we had done an after-school program, uh, a meeting with uh, some Vietnamese youth who came as refugees and a local immigration attorney. And I remember that attorney telling the youth that, you know, if you do something stupid, you know, you're a kid. Kids occasionally do dumb things. Mm -hmm. uh, do not allow your public defender to and let you plead guilty because mm -hmm. then that's a deportable offense. And I just remembered that, you know, these are kids who came as babies, as refugees. You know, some of them came on boats. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, why as a nation are we uh, holding them to a completely different standard than everybody else? And that was really our broken immigration system. So that's when it really hit home for me. Mm. Well, that's, that's very interesting. I think you have to see the impact it has at the grassroots level exactly. to really see how the impact is on people. So it's it's interesting how you, you've got to the point of having such insight into where we are today. Um, and what your book does, uh, in my opinion, it sets the tone of what the dialogue really should be. So tell us how you got there. You start with, in, in your book, you talk about how you, we were following the LGBTQ you know, movement and mm -hmm. thinking that would work for us. So talk a little bit about how you've come to the conclusion of what the conclusion actually is. Sure. Well, the book itself starts on uh, a particular day, December 18, 2010. In the United States Senate, on that day, two things happened. One is that in the morning, uh, the DREAM Act was defeated, and in the afternoon, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was successfully repealed. Now, we didn't have a dog in the fight on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but clearly we cared about the DREAM Act. And I remember thinking that, you know, we had to do something different. And so I took that day and I looked backwards, and I realized that those who were advocating for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they made a case to the American public of what it means to serve your nation openly and freely. 
Those of us in the immigrant rights community, we made the case to the American public based on politics. We registered voters. We focused on the swing states of, Arizona, of uh, Nevada and Colorado. We lost. They won. Uh, and what I realize is that elections matter, but actually culture matters more. Um, and that we as a movement had to do a much better job of engaging conservative Americans on this question about immigration. Because I think what happens is that when somebody who is politically or socially conservative and they see an immigrant moving into their, into their community, they ask, is my culture going to change? Are my values going to change? Is my neighborhood going to change? And we have to help people understand that, yes, there are going to be changes, but they're going to be for the better. You know, um, I think that's very insightful. I think we're at a time, and when you're writing this book, you probably didn't even realize how powerful the book was going to be because we're in a situation right now where our culture and values are being challenged in ways that are unprecedented. Um, you know, it's something that you have quoted in your book, and you quote Todd Schulte, the president of Forward.us, who's actually been on the show before. Immigration, more than any other issue, is a referendum on who we are as a nation. Um, why, why is this important? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, another person I quoted was uh, Doris Meisner, who was the commissioner of INS for President Clinton. And she had a great quote where she said, to paraphrase, you know, as Americans, we value, we cherish immigration in hindsight. We worry about it at, the, at, at present time. So I just think that there are a lot of, uh, of these questions that really people grapple with in a very honest way. And I think what we've done, those of us who care about immigrant and immigration reform, we've dismissed those anxieties. We've dismissed those fears. And as a result, you know, we, we've left people, uh, you know, frankly, looking to somebody like Donald Trump who has preyed on those fears to his benefit and not to the benefit of the nation. You know, I, I think... Um that's very profound, saying that, you know, our fears are being preyed on. And we're seeing that from, you know, climate change, which happened yesterday, mm -hmm. to, you know, immigration. And we're seeing that in everyday life uh, at the moment, what happened in Portland. And, right. you know, I mean, these, I don't know if they were immigrants, but they were Muslim. And, or, you know, so, so much is happening. How, how can people change this? So when you say it's culture, how do, how do we change it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think as, um, you know, for a lot of your audience who are immigration advocates, um, I think that we have to do a better job of making the case uh, for immigrants and for immigration reform uh, so that the idea of immigrants and immigration is seen as a benefit to the American worker and their family. So, you know, for example, when there's a discussion about the H-1B visa program, we often say that, you know, to the uh, 100 H-1B visas are linked to 182 native-born American jobs. Well, flip that around. Actually, 182 native-born American worker jobs are linked to 100 H-1B visas. To the listener, that put, makes it clear that we care about the American worker and their family, which we do. Otherwise, I, you know, for me personally, I wouldn't be doing this work. Um, but I, I think we have to really understand what are the triggers that we are you know, consciously or unconsciously, tr uh, um, you know, flashing and, you know, again, try to understand the fears and, and allay them. You have gone cross-country talking to people from Utah, South Carolina, California, Washington. What was the common theme mm -hmm. that you found from one coast to the other? Uh, I... That's a really good question. So for the, in the book, I, I spent time in South Carolina and suburban Houston and Indiana and Utah. And the work of the organization, we work, you know, really across the country, again, in these, con these parts, these communities that are very conservative. And the common theme is that uh, um, family, security, uh, uh, prosperity. 
And what I mean by that is that there is a tension for, I think, all Americans that we want to be a part of a welcoming nation, but we also want to be a part of a nation of laws. And, you know, this issue has a tendency to swing between those two poles. And we've got to help people understand how to live in that tension and realize that it is perfectly reasonable to be a welcoming nation and a nation of laws. We just have to make sure that our laws are more just. You know, it occurs to me to ask you, are there any countries that are doing that? No, that's a very good question. Um, you know, some people will say that Canada does that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, you know, I got nothing against the Canadians. They're wonderful people. <laughs> and what, their president, honestly, <laughs> or prime minister, <laughs> should be like cloned in every country. Maybe not France, but, you know, cloned for the other countries. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Canada's immigration system is very merit-based, very point-based. So I think, um, you know, the tension is that they're creating a, a country that is, you know, driven by an economic need, may or may not be driven by a social need. But on the other hand, the refugee resettlement programs that are individually sponsored are also very interesting. So I think that Canada does a very good job. I think other countries are really struggling. I think the U.S. has, you know, we have not lived up to our potential on this. You know, I think you said something about, uh, where did you say it in your book? I made lots of markings, <laughs> but we don't have enough time for to find them. But you said something like, the 1965 INA was revolutionary. It set the tone of what the, the, the world needed and America needed at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but now we've fallen behind. What did you mean by that? Well, it's funny. It's uh, one of the people I interviewed around the 1965 Act, INA Act, was Lou Dobbs. Uh, and I remember sitting in Lou's office, and we were going back and forth, and he made the case that the 1965 Act was when we as a nation started to lose our culture. I make the case that the 1965 Act is when we re-energized American culture. Um, and I think that the 1965 Act, you know, selfishly, it's the reason my parents came here. Uh, it's the vehicle through which they came here. Um, I think that it has been the piece of legislation that has allowed the United States to be a global leader. Um, com you know, economically, socially, uh, and I think the opportunity for Republicans right now, since they're in power, is to live up to that ideal. Well, I think the proof is in the pudding. I think exactly what you say. I mean, since then, we have the immigrants who have really put America on the map. We wouldn't have Google if we didn't have immigrants coming here. We wouldn't have, uh, you know, uh, many other Levi's and Bose and so many immigrants who are, who've created companies that a lot of Americans don't even know are founded by immigrants. So I think, I think you're very right. I never really thought about it, that that particular law really did um, boost the economic uh, and global leadership. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that insight. I never really thought about it. We're running out of time. I have so many things to ask you. So thank you for including Washington uh -huh. State. You know, we're in Washington State and you actually dedicate a whole chapter to it and you talk a little bit more about that. And you talk about the agricultural industry and what this particular uh, family has done. T talk a little bit about that. Sure. And it's, it's um, the family of um, Broat. Broaches. Broaches. Yep. And I have to have to say, you know, I, I loved reading about Rich Stoltz mentioned in the book, too. Uh -huh. He's been on the show, and we he's such a community leader that we are very grateful he's in Washington right here. So tell us a little bit about the, what you are talking about in the in, about Washington. Well, uh, you know, first of all, the big picture. While uh, it's important to our economy that we have the skilled engineer, our economy also depends on the skilled farm worker. 
And I think the state of Washington uh, is the perfect example of that, where you have, you know, this greater Seattle area, which is thriving because of high skill immigration. You have the, you know, eastern part of the states that's tri- thriving because of the skilled farm worker. Uh, the family that I sat down with is uh, the Brochi family, uh, based in Pasco, uh, and they have a very interesting approach to their farm, their orchard, and it's the largest apple orchard in the state, frankly, one of the largest apple orchards in the nation. And their theme, their motto is to bear fruit that lasts. And they take that beyond the apple. They want to make sure that the fruit that they're bearing, whether it's as in their own family, uh, their workforce, their workforce's children, last. Uh, so they want they have, you know, on their uh, on their property have built housing for the families, uh, churches, uh, um, schools, and also affordable housing across across the region. And what they've done is really helped the Tri Cities area in eastern Washington become a place where. The other person I interviewed was Lori Matson, who's the Chamber of Commerce executive out there, uh, where she is realizing that their long-term growth comes from a thriving small business community led by Hispanics. Um, and that's just incredibly special uh, because the, the diversity, the economic and ethnic diversity of Washington, you can just see it so clearly between you know, Pasco and Seattle. You know, I found it very interesting that they wanted the city to do it and the city didn't do it and then said, okay, city, we'll take the land from you. Right. You know, and I think that's very innovative and very um, um, you know, creative in how you are going to sustain your legacy, your farm, but also help the people. And how can this be replicated? Have you have you tried to connect others mm-hmm. to do the same? So I was uh, actually in Idaho six weeks ago um, in, in a room of 75 dairymen, you know, just down the road from here, just, just a little bit east of Washington, right? Mm-hmm. And what I found is that these dairymen, uh, um, they cared about their immigrant workforce and were afraid about the direction of immigration enforcement by the administration. Not because they saw their workforce as, you know, a cog in the wheel, to a person that I spoke to, they saw their workforce as an extension of their community, their family, because they've been with them for over a decade. They knew them. They knew what their kids were doing. Um, so I just think that, you know, across the nation, business leaders, whether it's the farmer or the CEO, are looking to their immigrant workforce as, again, an extension of their community and their family. You know, uh, and it brings us nicely to the badges, Bible badges and business. Mm -hmm. And you sort of uh, talk about that in the end because you're setting the scene of how you got there. Tell us a little bit more about this, you know, and it's very catchy, Bible badges and businesses, and they all have to care about and all have to step up. Tell tell us more about that. Sure. So the idea here is that if you are a conservative voter in Kansas um, and the CEO in Seattle says, I need another engineer, that person in Kansas doesn't see another engineer. They see another immigrant. So the C- whether it's the CEO in Seattle or the advocate from Washington, D.C., we're not going to convince that person. But their pastor, their police chief, their business owner is going to be able to have a conversation because they have that relationship. So over the years, we have built out a coalition that has come to be known as Bibles, Badges, and Business for Immigration Reform. And the idea is that if you hold a Bible, you wear a badge, or you own a business, you want a common sense solution to the immigration system. The reason why we start with those messengers and those particular leaders is that they can speak to the culture of a community. They're not speaking to the politics of a community. They're not even speaking to immigration policy. They're speaking to, you know, keeping families together, keeping communities safe, thriving, a thriving local economy. And that is what's really important to people. It's not, you know, whether or not, uh, uh, you know, there are going to be enough Asian voters to swing an election or, you know, what number of H-1B visas. They care, people care about their neighborhoods. Is this why the Utah Compact is so special? 
the Utah Compact is incredible because it was, in my, to, to my knowledge, one of the first times that conservative faith, law enforcement, and business leadership, frankly, in one of the most conservative states in the country, had come together and said, you know what, we're going to do this differently. We're going to make sure that Arizona's SB 1070, show me your papers law, does not come to our state. We're going to make sure that we establish a dialogue that's based on our culture as Utahns, that's uh, based on our interests. And our culture and our interests are about being a welcoming state, a safe state, and a state that thrives. You know, you when, and a lot of listeners and viewers may not know about the Utah Compact. Uh, it sort of came out uh, after many meetings and discussions after the after Arizona passed the the, the bill, the law about show me your papers. Um, what did that do for the conversations that followed? Well, what it meant was that. Um, you know, after SB 1070 passed, uh, we did a press conference in Utah because uh, some state workers had released a list of uh, thousands of people they alleged were undocumented. And the attorney general is on this press call, and he says, this list is not a hit, a blacklist, it's a hit list, and I'm going to do everything in my power to prosecute these individuals. Mark Shurtleff, who's the attorney general, uh, Republican as Republican can be, and what it meant is that Republican attorneys general, Republican leaders across the country were looking to Utah for a model of how to do this. Um, and they wanted to make sure that you know they could talk about conservative values, uh, conservative principles in the context of a much needed, more uh, constructive immigration dialogue. So have you been able to rep replicate that in other states? So since 2010, um, the basic framework was replicated in Indiana, Alabama, Colorado, uh, here in Washington, Rich uh, and and friends here in uh, Washington led an effort here. Um, but and I'm part of it. And you're part of it. Yes. I'm very grateful to be part of that. Uh, so, but what and what I wrote about is that you know that compact triggered and led to so many other constituency leaders, you know, from conservative Southern Baptists to conservative sheriffs engaging in this conversation. You know, and I and I and I do think it's been very impactful here in Washington mm -hmm. because it's brought various industries that wouldn't necessarily talk together. The you know the Seattle Chamber of Commerce right. with the you know the growers in the Eastern Washington all going towards the same direction. Um, you know, we don't have much time left, but I could really honestly talk to you all day. But we don't. Ha I really must cover this. So you talk a little bit about. And we're going to talk for like a minute on this issue. Um, the religious tension mm -hmm. that you talk about, you know, throughout the book, yep. you talk about going to congregations and so much. And then, you know, comes the election uh, and you talk about having your passport and your Facebook, you know, post about mm -hmm. American Muslim. Did you see the travel ban coming? Yes. I, I mean, I think we all saw, those of us who followed the, uh, the election saw what candidate Trump wanted to do. Um, and, you know, I tell a story about somebody uh, out of South Carolina that I interviewed, Harold Smith. Uh, he was a Trump uh, voter in the primaries. Um, he was a person who, you know, is in favor of immigration reform, but really saw Donald Trump as the person who could solve his issues. Um, Harold called me the night after the election, and I said, well, he says, what did you think? I said, well, Harold, you're right. Um, you know, there are a lot of qu questions out there across the country we have to answer. Um, and I said, Harold, if Donald Trump follows through on these campaign promises as policy, I need you to be the one that's, that speaks up. And Harold says, I know. Um, so I saw the travel ban coming just like I saw the increases in interior and border enforcement coming. Um, you know, Donald Trump tapped into these fears within the American public 
and he feels that he has to represent them now. Uh, it's our job to show the American public that there's a different way forward that you know, protects Americans, but also protects the immigrants uh, who are here. Did you, um, I, and I think everybody who are sort of in your position with the bird's eye view of what could happen, was were fearful of what could happen under this administration. But the, f the, the abruptness of it, the mm -hmm. speed of it, and the cruelty of it was, it seemed like it was unseen by a lot of us. Mm. Um, and it caught us by, you know, off guard, really. Um, have you had to, what, what is the fall, fallout for you and mm -hmm. the work that you're doing after the travel ban? So I, I think, I mean, number one, I'm surrounded by an incredible team uh, at the National Immigration Forum. And what they've done is uh, we have, uh, um, you know, developed very rapid analyses of the executive orders um, or even the legislation that's moving so that con the conservative networks that we're working with understand the consequences of these orders, of the travel ban onwards. Um, so that way people are, are kind of realize that, you know, this is, these are the facts. Mm -hmm. And based on these facts, we understand what the consequences are and what they can do in response. Um, so it is, yeah, it's fast and furious in Washington, D.C. Mm, it's fast days. and furious almost everywhere, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, Ali, we're running out of time. I'm so grateful, first of all, that you wrote a book oh, that is you. really a roadmap for what the dialogue should be and how we should be moving forward. But coming to Seattle, talking about it, and actually being on the show so our listeners could, viewers could see you, listeners could hear you, and this conversation could be ongoing. So if you're in Seattle again, we'd love to have you back. Thank you very much for having me. And I loved your book, by the way, as well. Oh, so thank, thank you for you. reading it. <laughs> thank Appreciate you. it. Yeah, you'll have to do like a testimony or something. <laughs> well, listeners and viewers, thank you so much for tuning in. So sorry that the camera shut off or something's happened. I'm still a little technically incompetent, so I'm figuring out all this, you know, technology stuff. But hopefully if you can't see us, you may be able to listen to us. But if you haven't been able to listen to us, this show will be on air on July 18th. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.